if, if you could for a moment picture what the blessed life looks like, how would you describe it? You could call it God's favor upon your life, walking in the Spirit, doing God's will. What, what does it look like in your mind to have a blessed life? And then kind of change your focus, expand it to the church, maybe Calvary Central or the church as a whole. What does the anointed church look like? What does the church that has God's favor upon it look like? What does the church who is walking in the will of God look like? What does it mean to be blessed? Does it mean we have the the latest technology, that we have bathrooms that have electronic sensors that dry your hands? What does it mean when a church is blessed? And where do we get that idea? Is our image of a blessed church from God's word? Or has our culture told us what it looks like to be blessed? Paul has warned us in chapter 3, do not deceive yourselves. And sometimes the way that we view things and our expectations are not from God's Word. They've been created by our culture and we've bought into them. And that is what Paul is addressing here in the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1, he writes, And I, brethren, I I could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to infants in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you are still not able, for you are still carnal, for where there are envy and strife and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? See, the church in Corinth had fallen into the trap of conformity. They had returned to worldly ways of thinking. In in Rome at the time, or in Corinth more specifically, it was, as we've talked about, a wealthy port city. There was a lot of money to go around, and it drew a lot of different kinds of people. They were wealthy, they were prosperous, they were comfortable, and philosophy held a high, high value in this culture. The deep thinking of of men. And Paul says, you're acting just like that old nature. You're going back to worshiping the creation and not the creator. You're going back to elevating man above God. And that's the heart of the culture in this wealthy port city of Corinth. And Paul says, I know this because I've received reports of worldly behavior, division, gossip, power struggles. Some of you say, I am of Paul. Some of you say, I am of Apollos. Did I die for you, Paul asks? James writes in James 1 verse 6, For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. And it's interesting because next week, and we'll leave this to Pastor John, 
Paul's going to deal with incest within the church. And as I said last week, if I was writing this letter, I would have led with that and said, what in the world is going on? You're allowing this to take place in the church, but Paul's smarter than me. Far, far smarter than me. And he knows that that is just a symptom of a foundational issue in the church. They have taken their eyes off of Jesus. They are no longer single, singly minded about glorifying God and telling his story. They have their eyes back on human earthly things. And because of that, there's divisions and strife and gossip. And out of that, we see the sin that's prevalent and accepted and celebrated in the church. Paul has to get these root issues dealt with first before he can ever move on to the symptoms. And the core of it all is just pride. It's pride. That's what's stunting their spiritual growth. That's what's blinding them. That's what's causing them to look more like their culture than men and women who are indwelled by the very spirit of the living God. It's pride. The church should be the gathering of the called out ones. Men and women who are far from perfect, but we demonstrate Christ-like attributes because He lives in us and we know or we try to surrender to His will. Augustine once wrote, Two cities have been formed by two loves. We live in a, a, a world where there's really two kingdoms at work. And that's what Augustine wrote about. He said, there's two cities and they have been formed by two loves. The earthly by the love of self, even to the contempt of God. And then there's the heavenly kingdom it's formed by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. The former, in a word, glorifies itself. The latter glories in the Lord. For the one seeks glory from men, but the greatest glory of the other is God. The one lifts up its head in its own glory. The other says to its God, Thou art my glory and the lifter up of my head. There's two very distinct worlds. And when the church begins to look like the world that glorifies man, we have lost sight of our mission. So Paul seeks to bring clarity here in his letter to the church. He wants to wash their eyes. How many of you, when when I was studying, for some reason my mind went back to science class? specifically chemistry. You guys remember the eye-washing stations? They look like two water fountains pointed at each other. And you watched a video about if you get like something in your eyes, you need to stick your face under the eye-washing station for like 10 minutes. And I always just wanted to put someone, that's how strange I am. I wanted to see someone's face. I just wanted to see it used. Never happened. But I see Paul taking the church in Corinth and washing out their eyes. He says, you're, you've been blinded. Let me call you back to clarity. And I know as I've been describing the church in Corinth, I know what you're thinking. That sounds a lot like us. Here we are as Americans. We're blessed with prosperity. And as difficult as things may be, 95% of us know where the next meal is coming from. We don't know what it means to be desperate. We don't know what it means to lack. We don't know what it means to go hungry. We may not have all our wants met, but we have all of our needs met. We are blessed, well, in the sense that we think we're blessed. 
I heard one pastor call this letter First Californians. But the reality is we can apply it to any major city in America. And the similarities between the Greco-Roman culture and its influence on the church, then it's striking how accurate it is for America and the church now. And so here's Paul, a loving father who birthed this church, And he says, stop playing these silly games. We are on this earth for one reason, and that's to lift up the name of Jesus Christ. Now, he's been fairly hard on the church in Corinth. He's diagnosed the problem, but now he's going to move on to the solution. And it's it's really easy, and I don't know if you've ever noticed this, it is really easy to pick out problems in society. It is really easy to point to issues. What's far more difficult is to provide a path out of it. There's a lot of complaining. There's not a whole lot of solution. And Paul will never leave this church that he has planted in a place where the problem is diagnosed, but they don't know what to do. So that's where he begins in chapter 4. Here's the path out. There's divisions. There's gossip. There's immaturity. I want you to grow up. So look at 1 Corinthians 4.1. Look at us, Paul says. Let a man consider us. You say, I am of Apollos and I'm of Paul, but look at us. Look at how we live, Paul says. Consider us. And then he uses two words to describe the apostles. He says, we're servants of Christ and we're stewards of the mysteries of God. You want to know the path out of this immaturity? You want to step back into your mission uh, and glorify Jesus Christ in your culture and see transformed lives and the power of God moving? Look at how we live. Look at our pattern of life. We are what? servants, and we are stewards. Now you may say, well, that, this sounds a little backwards. Paul is now sounding a little conceited. Hey, if you want to know what you need to do, look at me. When he just got done saying, don't look at us, look at Jesus. He said, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought And this isn't the only time Paul says, consider us. Later on, he's going to say more clearly, imitate me. And then in 1 Corinthians 11.1, he says, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. So understand what he's saying here. He's not saying, be like me. Because in Romans, he said, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, that's what I practice. He's not saying, be like me in that sense. Be a carbon clone of me, a carbon copy of me. He's saying, my pattern of life shows you that I'm dependent on Jesus. So imitate me as I imitate Christ. Follow my pattern of life in as much as it follows the pattern of Jesus' life. And what is that pattern of life? Well, Paul already told us in 1 Corinthians 3, 5. Who then is Paul? And who is Apollos but servants through whom you believed as the Lord gave to each one? 
He says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And Jesus came as a servant. He came not to be served, but to serve. And that's the pattern Paul is modeling. Now that word servant, I know you've heard this before if you've been in a in a Calvary for 10 minutes. That word servant comes from a, a Greek word that means under rower. It's a, in some Roman ships, slaves were tied into the, were chained to the hull of the ship, inside the hull of the ship. And they were given oars and they were to row in turn and they are what powered those boats. Now later on, it, probably when Paul is using this word, that word has taken on new meaning and they used it to describe anyone who performed intense manual labor. So when Paul says servants, he's talking about somebody that uses their hands, somebody that gets to work, someone who is less talk and more action. He says we're laborers of who? Of Christ. We are his hands and his, his feet. Guys, I know you've heard this a hundred times, but I repeat it. Spiritual leadership is servanthood. It's putting our hands to work for the good of others. And Jesus demonstrated that clearly as he got down on his hands and his knees and washed the disciples' feet and then told them, you go and do likewise. If I, being your rabbi and your master and, oh, the creator of the universe, have gotten down on my hands and my knees and I've washed your filthy feet, you go and do the same. That's spiritual leadership. It's a thankless job. Sometimes people you serve will repay you with indifference. Or even worse, they'll repay you with evil. That's okay. That's what we signed up for. Because we don't do it for them. We are servants of Christ. Paul also says we are stewards. Now what's a steward? That word means an estate manager. In Paul's time, there were these large estates that had many, uh, many things in motion that was often complicated. A household full of uh, a husband and a wife, grandpa and grandma, cousins, aunts, uncles. It was just a, a massive estate. And usually the master would leave for extended periods of time. And when the master left, someone had to be responsible for that household and stewards would act in their stead managing that household. That household didn't belong to them, but they were to act as if it did. They were to treat the master's belongings in the same care as if it were the master doing the work. That's what a steward would. That's what a steward steward was. And what does Paul say? We're stewards. We're estate managers. This isn't our work. This isn't under our power. But we are in. We are acting in the stead of our master. And what are what are we stewards of? The mysteries of God. What what does that mean? 
sounds a little bit Indiana Jones-ish. Stewards of the mysteries of God. Well, Paul's already told us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7. He says, we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages of our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God. But God has revealed them to us through His Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. What are these mysteries? It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the, imagine the, the prophets and the priests of the Old Testament wondering, God, you are righteous and you're just, yet you tell us you're going to pour out your mercy on your creation. How is that possible? How can you be a righteous judge, yet show mercy? Jesus. That's the mystery. They were wondering how in the world God could balance His justice and His righteousness and His purity and His perfection, but look at the sins of humanity and say, no, I forgive those sins. Because that would be contrary to His character, to turn a blind eye to all the hurt and the pain. So, what's the fulfillment of that mystery? The God-man, Jesus Christ who lived a perfect life and took those sins and the consequences of those sins upon himself. And we steward that story. We live to see the message of the gospel and the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our responsibility is to take that message. It's not ours. We didn't do the work. But we're sharing it with the world that desperately needs to hear it. We are stewards stewards of the mysteries of Christ, and we're servants of Christ, not of man. And this is so important. I've got to lean on this for just a second because this is where I think we get off base. We aren't serving primarily one another. I know that sounds strange, but when we get it in our minds that we are primarily serving one another, we often look for appreciation, right? Or accolades, or a pat on the back, or some appreciation, or public acknowledgement. But when we are serving Jesus first and foremost, we are only concerned about whether or not we're pleasing Him. And that is extremely freeing. Jonathan Edwards said to his congregation, I am your servant but you will never be my master. Think about that for a moment. It sounds harsh, but that's the only way that he or any pastor can be an effective minister. He says, I am your servant, but you will never be my master. Meaning Christ is or was his master, but Christ called him to serve the people. When we come to church and we set up chairs or we teach the children or we monitor the parking lot, we're not doing it for the pastors or the directors or even the visitors. We are doing it for Jesus. We should be doing it for him because that frees us to not worry about all that extracurricular 
drama that can get in the way. That's where the church of Corinth fell short. Oh, they were gifted, right? They had been given every good gift, but they boasted about their gifts. They argued about who was the greatest and what gift was the greatest and which one of them was the most important to that church. Guys, that's not having your eyes fixed on Jesus. That is serving man first and not serving God. So the tonic for feeling underappreciated or unnoticed is taking on the mind of Christ. And knowing that we do serve others, but first and foremost, we serve Jesus. That's the cure for the church in Corinth, and that's the cure for the church in America. And that's, that's the clarity that we need. What is the role of the church? We are servants of, Christ's, of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. It's so different than what was actually going on in Corinth. Their aspirations were to be important because that's, in their culture, a culture that elevated man above God, you sought to be highly thought of, to make a name for yourself. You wanted to be like the philosophers of the time. But Paul says, look at us. We are just servants. And then he says, this is how we should be judged. Let me ask you a question. Well, before, let's look at verse 2, and then I'll ask you a question. Moreover, Paul writes, it is required in stewards that they be highly gifted. Is that what it says? It is required in stewards that they just have one of those personalities that people are drawn to. It's required that their intellectuals are wealthy or someone that others just respect and look up to. No, what is the single requirement of a steward? Faithfulness. I will take someone who's just willing to show up any day over someone who's highly gifted and if they feel like it, they'll, they'll be there for you. Just being faithful. How do we judge leaders today? When you look at a successful ministry, how, how do you judge leaders today and say, okay, they are successful and they are not? What makes for a successful ministry? Well, how, how does... Call out. How does the church... On, by and large, judge successful ministry. Numbers, right? How many people, what's the size of your church? And then they, when they look at individuals, it's often, okay, what giftings does he possess or she possess? Are they a gifted teacher? Are they funny? Are they entertaining? What's their personality like? Oh, they must be anointed. But think about this for a second. Paul has already said that God gives the increase, right? Paul says, I, I have planted, Apollos has watered, but it's God who gives the increase. So if we're judging a successful ministry on the size of the church, who grew that church? 
Was it because of the visionaries behind that church? Or is it God that handles the increase? That's assuming that the increase is of God and not because of the entertainment that's provided. So, if you have a church that is large and thriving, who gets the glory for it? It should be God. What about giftings? Where do our gifts come from? They come from God. Your personality. Who gave you your personality? God. So where in any of this is there room for boasting? Where in any of this is there room for bragging? Why do we elevate individuals just because we think that they're successful? Our calling is not to be successful. It is to be faithful. God handles the growth. Because if we're constantly looking around wondering, okay, is this successful? Doesn't matter. Did God call you to it? There's a lot of prophets in the Old Testament that didn't see any conversion. They didn't see... They were calling people back to the ways of God and nobody would listen. Thank God they were not concerned about success in a worldly way. They were simply being obedient to God. Our calling is not to be successful, it's to be faithful. Look at verse 3. Again, Paul says, this is what's required in stewards, that one be found faithful. They're doing the work. They're showing up. Verse 3. He says, but with me it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. And then he says, I I know of nothing against me, yet I am not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. What is he saying there? He's describing a mindset where he says, "You're, you're not my judge. You don't determine whether or not I'm being faithful to God. And he says, I don't even judge myself in that respect. I don't think there's anything that that is an issue in my life as far as being faithful to the ministry. I don't think there's anything that I can condemn myself about, yet I know my inadequacies. I'm not going to know my motives until I stand before God. Paul is uniquely self-aware here, isn't he? I was thinking about this. I, I think I know why I come up here on Sunday mornings. I think I genuinely desire to teach the Word of God because I know that transforms lives. I know that my life was transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. I know what I look like before Him, and I know what I look like now. And I want to share that with you. But are there wrong motives mixed in with that? Can you enjoy being in front of people? God knows. We're, when we judge ourselves, we, we give ourselves a, a pass, usually. But Paul's so self-aware, he says, it's, it's the Lord who judges me. You don't judge me. I can't even judge myself. But ultimately, I'll stand before God and I'll know what kind of materials I was using when I built into you. 
You know my motives, Lord. So Paul says, therefore, in verse 5, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. Again, another way of saying, get your eyes off of yourself. Quit trying to please man. Focus on God's will. It's not about making a name for yourself. We are accountable to God and God alone. Guys, too many believers live under the burden of public opinion. How will people see me if I do this? Guys, that's too heavy of a burden to bear. Lay that down this morning. Be free from that. And you'll continually have to come back and lay it down again and lay it down again. But ultimately, we do this for God's glory. Look at verse 6. And Paul says, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written. You might want to underline that. Do not think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Okay, Paul is trying to break them free of this mindset that we have exhausted talking about, right? He's talking about being puffed up, arrogant, thinking more highly about about yourself. So let, let me bring you back a little bit to the Gospels. Because I think every one of us struggles with caring too much about what others think. Wanting to get some of the glory. Guys, even if we have low self-esteem and we're constantly beating ourselves up and we don't think we're good enough and we don't think we're worthy and, and, and we're constant, who are we still thinking about all the time? Ourselves. So that's just pride in another form. When Jesus was training up the apostles to go out into the world, and carry this amazing message of forgiveness. Throughout his time with the apostles, he was constantly trying to break them free of this kind of mentality. You guys remember Peter, I'm going to die by your side, Jesus. I will never leave your side. There was this idea, they had this false view of themselves. They were constantly arguing over who was going to be greater in the kingdom of God. You remember the sons of thunder, they went with Jesus to a a Samaritan village and the Samaritan village rejected them. And, And what did the sons of thunder say? God, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and roast this city? And Jesus said, you don't know what manner of man I am. So how did Jesus break them from this mentality? Well, you see him consistently bringing his apostles into situations that were bigger than themselves. 
that's where we gain a, a realistic perspective about life. We are entitled, and not generationally, but as a culture, we think we deserve things that we absolutely do not because we live in a culture, in a society, where things come easy. But Jesus brought His apostles out onto open water where there was a storm that was raging so hard that the disciples thought they were going to die. And what was Jesus doing that whole time? He was sleeping in the hull of the ship. And the disciples are are terrified and they're freaking out and they don't know what to do. And finally they go down to Jesus and they see Him asleep on a pillow and they say, Jesus... Don't you care that we're going to die? And Jesus wakes up and says, Oh, you have little... Oh, no. He says, Why do you have no faith? See, before they got on that boat, Jesus told them, We're going to the other side. But they didn't believe Him when the circumstances told them something different. So Jesus speaks to the waves and the wind and He tells them to stop and they stop immediately and the disciples ask, who is this man who controls the wind and the waves? But that's not the first time Jesus brings them out onto open water. He does it again, but this time He sends them across the sea by themselves and He goes up into the wilderness, into the mountains, and He prays. And so the disciples are out on open water and they look out on the sea and they think there's a ghost coming towards them. There had been superstitions about open water because so many had died in the sea that they thought the ghosts of those who died in open water haunted the sea. And they saw this figure coming and they said, it's a poltergeist. Jesus said, do not be afraid. And then we know Peter, he says, Lord, if it's you, call out to me. He said, Peter, come. And Peter starts walking out on the water and he starts looking at, around at the, the, the waves and, and he's in over his head. He takes his eyes off Jesus. He begins to sink. And Jesus brings him up and puts him in the boat. And then Jesus says, oh, ye of little faith. You know what the disciples say then? This truly is the Son of God. And then Jesus continues to bring them into situations. There's 5,000 people. Jesus has been teaching all day. They're in the middle of the wilderness. There's no food out there. And the disciples say, it's getting late, Jesus. These people are hungry. They're tired. It's time to send them home. Can you imagine that? telling God, hey, do you know what you're doing here? And you know what Jesus said? You feed them. He turns to the 12 disciples and he says, you feed this crowd of more than five. There were 5,000 men. That doesn't even include women and children. Why Why would Jesus say that to them? 
Why would he try to belittle them? Why would he try to embarrass him, them? That's not what he's doing. He's giving them a proper view of their own inadequacy and their dependence on him. That's what he's trying to bring them to. You are dependent on me. This world is fallen. It's dangerous. It'll be hard. You will lose people that you love. People you care about will harm you. He's preparing the apostles to go into the world and find a hostile world that hates the image of Jesus Christ. But one day later on in life, you'll see the apostles in jail after they have been beaten. And you know what they're doing? They're singing praises to God. Because they are now indwelt by the Spirit and they're not serving man, they're they're serving Jesus. And they know that their hope is found in Him. See, Jesus is faithful to use our trials in life to break us of this broken, sick, worldly mindset and help us to understand that we are dependent on Him for everything. He can be trusted. Paul says, you... may learn from us not to think beyond what is written. That was one of the appeals of sophistry and philosophy in Corinth. Everyone was looking for that new thing. But Paul says we have it. Don't add anything to the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you add anything to the gospel, Paul says it's no longer the gospel. You don't need a new message People are always hungry for something new. We always have these itching ears that we want some new revelation or some new bent on truth or a new idea or a new way to fit the Word of God into our box. The culture culture is always pressing in on the truth of God's Word, trying to get us to compromise it, trying to get us to, to fit it in to what our culture says is good and right, but God's Word is unchanging. And Paul says, never go beyond what is written. And I want to encourage you, faithful men and women, faithfully preaching the Word of God, should sound reassuringly familiar regardless of the generation. You understand what I mean by that? The truth is the truth. That's why we can go back to some of the grandfathers of the faith and we read their words and we're like, did they live during our time? They saw this coming because the truth is the truth. Guys, we're studying a a document that's 2,000 years old. And we look at it and we're like, yep, that makes sense. That's what we're seeing today. Because the truth of God's Word has been and always will be the truth. Solid exposition of the Word of God. It's timeless. And that was a challenge to me. Can someone take the words that I'm sharing and 200 years from now listen to it and say yes that still applies if the answer is no I've gotten off on some tangent but when we are stewarding the mysteries of God they're timeless they're unchanging never go beyond what is written Paul says okay look at verse 8 and this is good oh man Paul the way he writes 
and this seems biting and harsh, but we'll, we'll hear his heart in a second. But it's easy to miss the sarcasm in Paul's words here. And he says, you're already fool. You are already rich. You have reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I could wish you did reign, that we all might reign with you. You're reigning as kings. You have it all figured out. You have everything that you need. You are full. You are wealthy. You're reigning as kings. And and I wish you really were, because then I'd come alongside you and reign with you. Do you know what Paul is talking about here? He's talking about the dangers of prosperity. We need to be well aware of this. Like I said, things may be getting more difficult, but we are still a prosperous nation. If you have a a car, you are wealthier than more than 99% of the world's population. And in that prosperity, it is extremely difficult to remain dependent on Jesus Christ. Think, think about this for a moment. We don't, like I said, know what it means to be desperate for help. How many of you don't raise your hand, didn't know where your next meal was coming from at any point in your life? How many of us have known what it means to go hungry? Some of you may have. And you have a unique perspective on what it means to be desperate. But we don't know this kind of desperation. We can't see our deepest needs. And when we live in a a world where we are desperate for Jesus, sometimes it's easy to forget when we don't know what desperation is. And Paul is saying you're prosperous and you're acting like Jesus has already returned. That's what Paul is saying. You are acting like you are living in a restored, renewed heaven and earth. That the end times have already come. There's no more sin. There's no more pain. There's no more heartache. The only thing left to do is just glory in God's presence. And Paul says, I wish that was the case. But Paul looks around and he sees the apostles pouring out their lives for the sake of the gospel. Paul's been beaten and thrown in prison. He's been starved. He's hungered. He's thirst. And he sees the church in Corinth living as if Jesus had already returned, that the, as if the messianic kingdom was already present and that there was no more work to be done. How many of us live that way? The work's over. The war's over. Now it's time to just put our feet up and enjoy what this life has to offer. Guys, that's convicting for me. When you look around and you see how many Christians are just fixated on amusement and entertainment and we're blind to the work that's at hand, we live as if the war is already over and that there's nothing left to fight for. And again, Paul draws us back to the fight. He wrote to young or older Timothy here in 2 Timothy 4 verse 5, You be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the same 
time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. That's what Paul wrote at the end of his life. But if we get convinced that the war is over and we get our eyes off Jesus, what happens? We get too much time on our hands. And when there's too much time on our hands, what do we start to do? Start picking at one another. That's what my kids do when they're bored. They start picking at one another. You're showing me that you have too much free time, so I got plenty for you to do. Some of you young people are like, man, I'm so sick of hearing that. Sound just like my dad, I know, but that's what happens. I mean, think about how gross this is. Picture a family where mom works full time. She goes to work, works a 10, 12 hour day. She comes home, she cleans, she cooks, and her husband and the kids spend her money and they sit around watching TV. That's kind of disgusting, isn't it? That is not a healthy family. But when we come together and the needs of a few, or the needs of many are only met by a few, that's exactly what this looks like. This mindset that the war is over, it creates a situation within the church where there's a few hands who are struggling to meet the needs of the many, and that's wrong. It doesn't have to be that way. Paul says, wake up. Christ is coming back. And Jesus did say on the cross, it is finished. But that work that he finished was the forgiveness of sins. And now we get to carry out that message, right, to the world. But our fight against our flesh and the systems of this world and the devil, that's not over yet. Well, the devil's been defeated but he's still whispering lies like, oh, you know that old nature of yours? Man, just give in. Remember how good it was? Remember how good it felt? Just give in. Look at verse 9. For I think that God... Now, this is going to take just a little bit to unpack here. I think that God has displayed us The apostles last as men condemned to death, for we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. Here's what Paul is talking about. The the, uh, men and women of of Corinth would, would associate this kind of language with something they've seen many times. See, when a, a Roman military procession was returning from a great victory, they would enter into the city through a gate that had been decorated for their return. And there would be this victory procession They would come through the main gate, and first you would have singers singing of their victory. Then you'd have the soldiers and the troops coming in after the singers. And then you'd have chariots coming in after the troops. And then you'd have all the spoils of war coming in after them. It would be this parade. But after the spoils of war, you would have prisoners in chains. They would later become slaves. But even after that, there was one more group. It was the last ones. These were those who were sentenced to death. 
and they would be marched straight into the Olympic Stadium. And they would literally be fed to wolves. And that's what Paul is talking about. God has displayed us. We are the last in that line. We are not all, we're not simply the, the slaves that are going to become servants. We are the ones that are condemned to death for we have been made a spectacle to this world, both to angels and men. You're enjoying your wealth and your prosperity and you're acting like Jesus has already come. Look at what the apostles, look at their lives. And I heard this and I thought about the Christians in third world countries. We're living like the war is over and they're huddled together around a candlelit single page of maybe Ephesians, treasuring it like it's a piece of gold, trying to learn what God would have for them knowing that any moment someone could kick open their door and take their whole family to prison. It's a humbling thought, isn't it? That people are still dying for their faith. And they treasure the Word of God. And that is the danger of prosperity. Paul says, look at our lives. Verse 10, we're fools but we're fools for Christ's sake. But you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you, you're strong. You are distinguished, but we're dishonored. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed, and we're beaten, and we're homeless. Yet we labor, working with our hands, being reviled, we still bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world. That word Paul uses is the garbage that gets stuck to the bottom of your shoe and gets scraped off. We are that kind of filth. We are the off-scoring, the scum of the earth. of all things until now. That would be an interesting tagline for a church. Hey, come to Calvary Central. Well, you'll you'll learn to be the filth of the world, the outscoring, the scraping off of one's shoes. I don't hear this verse used in many prosperity messages. But Paul says, look at us. Now, which of these, the The Corinthians, the church in Corinth, and Paul and the apostles. Which one of them looks most like Christ? The church in Corinth with their wealth and their notoriety, their comforts, their conveniences, elevating man above God, or the apostles? Which one is doing the will of God? Which one is the blessed life? See, it's not always what we think it is. We are fools for Christ's sake, Paul says. You guys are spending your time arguing over who is greatest, and some of your brothers and sisters in Christ don't even know where their next meal is coming from. The reality is we have time to bicker and complain and posture and gossip because we are probably far from the fight. 
so far we can't even hear the sound of battle. And that's what happens when the church and churchgoers are more concerned about being comfortable than they are about being Christ-like. Paul's calling them away, away from that. That's the curse of prosperity. We lose perspective. Now, again, what, what do we do? Does that mean we need to go sell everything and live on the streets? Listen to what Paul says, and we'll close with this. He says, I'm not, look at verse 14, I'm not writing these things to shame you. But what? What's Paul trying to do? My beloved children, I warn you. Be aware of the dangers of prosperity. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, you do not have many fathers. And for in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the, the gospel. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me. So, so now his sarcasm and his admonishment, it's giving way to his true heart here. I'm not trying to shame you for your lifestyle. You were born into Corinth. There is wealth there. It's not bad that you have all of your meals planned. But I warn you, don't buy into the false idea that you need nothing because you are still dependent on Jesus Christ. You have many teachers coming through, many philosophers, but understand, I gave you the gospel. Look at verse 17. And for this reason I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful Son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. Now some of you are puffed up, as though I'm not coming back to you. But I will come to you shortly, if the Lord wills, and I will know not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. What do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod? or in love and a spirit of gentleness. Paul says all the talk in the world doesn't amount to much. He wants to see transformed lives. And don't we share in that desire? So here's the warning to us. Don't get comfortable. It doesn't mean we have to feel bad because we have been born into a, an affluent nation, but let's keep in mind the dangers of that. And is our culture having an impact on our mission? Paul says, we, talk is cheap. We can all sit around talking about ministry all day long. We can sit around talking about our mission all day long. We can show up on a Sunday and even a Wednesday and we can talk about the deep things of God, but are we seeing the power of God? Are we seeing transformed lives? Are we seeing men and women coming to know Christ? Our responsibility is just to be faithful to that work. God will handle the growth. Are we in the fight or have we got comfortable?